Now we're going to read from God's Word. This week we're looking at John 1 again. John 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, We're focusing on verses 14 through 18, but I'll read 1 through 18 to give us context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. This is the word of the Lord. Do you want to know God? Do do you want to get to God? Now, some people, their honest answer for where they are is they don't. They, They just don't care because God is not on their mind, in their thoughts. God, for them, plenty of people, he just seems irrelevant. God seems about as relevant as the 10th century Russian feudalism laws. It seems like something obscure, ancient, arcane. There's just no connection to your life today. God and you has nothing, it seems to have nothing to do with your bumper-to-bumper commute on 64. It seems to have no connection to where your bank account is today. God seems to just be this concept out there and has nothing to do with getting through the week. And if that's you, I'm, I'm hoping that as you're listening to this, as you're here with us today, I hope you'll just slow down. I hope you'll take advantage of your humanity you have the capacity as a human being to consider higher things. You've got the capacity to consider the implications of the existence of a creator. And so I invite you to take this time, as you hear, just to slow down and consider. 
Now, it's also the case, though, that plenty of people, and in fact, the majority of people do care about this question. Plenty of people, most people actually care about how to know God, how to get to God. We're told that there are about 8 billion people on the planet and that about 85% of them align with some religion, some faith system. Nearly 7 billion people in the world alive right now, they think it's normal to sense that there is a God and that there is a spiritual realm. But how do you get to God? How do you get to him? How do you get his favor? Now, on this question, the other major religions of the world, they do all agree with each other, generally. They do all agree. They, they would say something like this, in the broad. Uh, they would say, follow, follow these practices. Follow our practices in order to get to God. Maybe, maybe some of the religions would say, you need to get to God, you need to abstain. Abstain from certain foods. Abstain from certain practices. Or they may say, apply yourself to some of these rituals. Apply yourself to some of these disciplines that we promote. And this is the place where Christianity sharply differs from every one of the world religions. Christianity pushes a person, not practices. Christianity says there are all sorts of practices, and plenty of them are good practices. Maybe giving money to those who are in need. Maybe making a pilgrimage to a place that has importance. Some of them would say, you need to take multiple wives. Others would say, you need to refuse to take multiple wives. But Christianity teaches that practices won't get you to God. It's not practices, but a person that gets you to God. And and for Christians, that person is Jesus. We teach, we have come to know that Jesus gets you to God. If you look at this first verse in, our, in the section we're looking at this morning, John 1, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's one verse, and John here is employing incredibly dense language here. And I, I don't know a better way to introduce this but we're going to take a, just a slightly extended theological introduction to today's text. The word became flesh, it says in verse 14. The word became flesh. The word. That's one of, one of several designations for Jesus. It says that Jesus became flesh. That means he was a human being. He lived roughly during the years 0 AD through 33 AD. It says he dwelt among us. That means Jesus literally would have had a zip code in the place and time where he was. He, he would have had school teachers. He, he would have had a shop where he performed his carpentry trade and where he would contract with customers. And then it says, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and it, what it's saying here is that by coming, when Jesus came and lived as a human, Coming and living the human life, Jesus showed us glory. His glory, it says. Now, when you come to that word glory in the Bible and, and in this text, glory is theology code speak for God. If you see this, this glory, whatever it is, if you see this glory, you are seeing God because God is glorious. 
Now, well, what is this glory? What, what is this glory of God? What you have to describe it, it, it it's, it's almost not, not in terms of propositions, but you have to describe it almost in terms of sense. His glory is his dazzling brightness. His glory is an effulgence of light. If you were to stand in the presence of God, his glory would would hit you. The response of your body, it would be visceral if you were before his glory. You would be sensing heavy light, wonder and awe that that would just make you fall on your face. It would be like a burning fire, the burning fire of the sun, and yet you would not be consumed. Places like Deuteronomy 5, 24 speak of these other times when, when God appeared to people and they saw his glory. That's how they saw him. They saw his glory. It says, the Lord, our God, has shown us his glory and his greatness And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, and yet he lives. And and so here, John says, this is what's happened. This is what's happened in the coming and in the life of Jesus Christ. John says, when Jesus, the word, became flesh and lived among us, we saw God. We saw God. We thought we were just seeing a man, but we were actually seeing God. We saw his glory when we saw Jesus. Now, sometimes people go on a quest. Sometimes it's, it's unconscious and they're just on a quest. Sometimes they know that they're on a quest. They're on a spiritual quest to settle questions, questions that are ultimate, questions that are nagging them, questions that are behind why life seems to have nothing more. Why? Why am I here? Is there a God? Is good real, or is it just molecules and energy? Will evil be punished? Why do we suffer, and how can I know God? Are you, are you looking for God? If you're looking for God, look at Jesus. And when I say look at Jesus, what we mean by that is look at his life. And and as you look at his life, look for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So with our remaining time, let's do that now. How do we see glory in the life of Jesus. And and this is the the message of of today's text. Jesus became ordinary to show us God. Jesus became ordinary to show us God. Let's see how he did it, and, and let's see what it means for how we live today. How did Jesus become ordinary to show us God? How did he become ordinary in order to show us God? Well, here's the first thing we see. We see that Jesus dressed himself down. Jesus dresses down. Jesus took his greatness, he took his greatness, and he made his greatness into something plain. Jesus exchanged his own dazzling glory for a lowly glory. We see a lowly glory in the life of Jesus. Verse 14 says, Jesus, the word, became flesh. Jesus dwelt among us, it says. So as we go into this, two more theological terms, theological concepts that you want to know. There's 
immanence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, immanence and incarnation. Immanence. We're not talking about eminence. That's someone's, someone's um, broad greatness that's, that's seen above everyone. And we're not talking about imminence, which means something that's shortly about to pass. We're talking about immanence. That means God comes near. Though God is greatly exalted, though God is highly placed in the heavens, he's beyond us, he is transcendent, he's dwelling in the heavenly places, God also comes near. He is immanent. In him we live and move and have our being. God is not far off. God is not distant. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God came near to us. And that's why Jesus, one of his other names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus joined a congregation. Jesus mixed with the kids. He would have mixed with your kids. Jesus worked with wood. Jesus shared meals with his friends. That's immanence. Now there's also incarnation. Incarnation, that means that God became human. It says Jesus, who is God, became man. He took on flesh. The incarnation, in some ways you could say, is the supreme act of immanence. How is God with us? He did it in the incarnation. He took on our flesh. And this, this is high, high Christology. The Son of God, who is fully God, but distinct from God. Jesus, one being, one person, he's got two natures. A full divine nature, a full human nature. He's fully man, and he is fully God, one person. Can we explain can we explain how that could possibly work? How that could cohere and exist? No, we, we can't. We're just finite, mortal creatures. How, how, could we, how could we expect that we could fully explain or even understand transcendence? It would, it would only be conceit or, or hubris that would, 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 would insist that, well, we have to be able to fathom it. If it's real, we have got to be able to fully chart it out. We can't even understand something as basic as love. But I want you to see the scandal of this, the scandal of God's imminence, the scandal of the incarnation. In Jesus' incarnation, divinity dressed down. Jesus, the extraordinary one, became ordinary. It, meant, it means that Jesus looked plain. It means that if Jesus had a dating profile, his photo would not stand out. You would just scroll right past it. Isaiah 53, verse 2, he had no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You see the scandal of that? It's a scandal because people rightly describe God's exaltation and his majesty. God is in the highest of heights in the heavens, and, 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 and they, would, they, would, they would rightly say, you would have to do Years and years, decades of crawling on your knees, up 
the stairs in order to get to the heights of heaven, if you were able to do that. You would have to submit yourself to the most stringent lifetime of religious disciplines if you could possibly make your way up that ladder to heaven. You would have to keep yourself clean. You would have to hold your life together. You would have to keep your grades together. You would have to hold your marriage together if you want a chance to get there. You would have to keep building a record of good until you finally got high enough to see the door to heaven. But here's what nobody expected. We try to climb up to God. We didn't expect God would climb down to us. The incarnation of Jesus shows us God. It shows us the lowly, the humbling glory of God, that God would lower himself to connect to us. You cannot go to him, but he can come to you. The Bible tells us that Jesus left his high seat in heaven, set aside his robes of glory, and instead clothed his divinity with lowly humanity. Philippians 2, verse 7, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and, and being found in the appearance as a man he humbled himself. That saying that in his incarnation, not only did Jesus become a man, it's saying that Jesus became a poor man. It means that Jesus qualified for Medicaid. It means that Jesus was dependent on Medicaid. Second Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That means Jesus worked. That means Jesus worked a job, but he didn't make much. That means Jesus had money, but he didn't have much money, and money was tight. Is money tight for you? Money was tight for Jesus, too. Here's another way to think about the incarnation. I have a phone. Plenty of us have phones, right? And we have on our phones these mapping applications, maps that get us places. And so maybe you're going across town to visit a friend. Maybe you're going to a new doctor in a different part of town. And does this happen to you? You're, you're going somewhere new, and plenty of times I'm just obeying whatever the GPS tells me to do in order to get where I need to go. And it will take me through parts of town that I have never seen. Parts of town that I didn't even know they existed and yet they're in my town. It will take me through, down these streets that I've never seen. And sometimes I'm, I'm driving, following the instructions and I'm driving through uh, some, some blocks or even some miles and I'm wondering, is this a safe place to be driving? I'm seeing neighborhoods. I, once I was driving, following the GPS, and in the middle of the day, a child ran down his driveway as I was driving and threw a stick at, at my car. I don't think he was aiming at me. It was just so random. I was wondering, is it, is it safe here? You see neighborhoods, houses that are just worn out. And, and some places you drive and you think, I'm pretty sure there is, there is drug activity going on here. I'm pretty sure the reason why there are five police cars with their lights on is that there was just a shooting. And, and maybe as you drive through, as I drive through some of these places, I'm thinking in my head, playing this make-believe game of, 
Would I want to live here? What would it be like to live there in that apartment or there in that house? And I wonder, if I did live there, what would that be like? Would I be worrying about break-ins? Would, I, would, would, would people break in and, and steal my laptop if I lived there? Would there be mice? Would there be roaches? And, and sometimes as I'm thinking about this, I think, oh, there's no way I'd want to live there. But that's the downgrade of the incarnation. Jesus in his incarnation downgraded his neighborhood. Jesus dressed himself down. Jesus put on shabby clothes. Jesus moved to the bad part of the universe. He moved to the place of suffering and sickness. He touched it. Now, three ways that this applies. First of all, this, the incarnation, the imminence, this has everything, everything to do with what people of churches ought to be doing. This has everything to do with what we as a church should be doing. Incarnational ministry. Incarnational ministry. It means our goal, our goal even as as a congregation, we're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to erect some platform that will tower over the city. Instead, we we want to enter into the hard places in our town. We want to go to the places that are beyond our ability, that don't match our background. We want to go to people who have huge problems, who have systemic problems. We want to go to people that have chronic health issues. We want to go towards people who have undiagnosable mental issues. We want to enter places of poverty. We want to enter places where there is dysfunction. We don't turn away. We don't say, that's the wrong part of town. Those are the wrong kinds of people. Those problems are beneath me. Instead, incarnational ministry means we grow down. But not only down, not only do we grow down, we grow across. We move across. Jesus moved down from heaven to earth, but Jesus also moved across. He went from being the son of God, the divine son, to also being the son of man. He moved across. And so the question for for us, for you, as, as people of the congregation, can you do that? Can you not only move down, can you move across? Can you move into another culture? Can, can you move from one nation to another, from one ethnicity to another? Can you move from one financial level to another, either direction? Can you move from whatever is comfortable and home to you and start to dwell in the place and in the life of others? Secondly, this has everything to do not just with what we as as people of the church should be doing, this has everything to do with how to lead, how to lead. Are you, are you a supervisor at some level? Do you have people under you, on your team? Uh, are you a big sister? Are you, are you a parent? You are called to lead in weakness. Don't lord yourself over people. Lower yourself. Jesus, the leader of a kingdom, the leader of the entire kingdom, he utterly perplexed his own people when he lowered himself to wash their feet. Jesus, it was like Jesus did DoorDash for his disciples. Jesus wiped their tables after the meal. I think of one example, maybe some of you were around, this probably like 20 years ago, we had a member here. 
And back then, you know, the way we kind of broke up how we tried to take care of things and get things done here is we just had volunteers for vacuuming the church every week and for cleaning the bathrooms every week. It was just a sign-up. We used to do that for mowing the lawn. About 20 years ago, we had a member, and this member had an Ivy League education. This member had an MBA. This member had a PhD. You would not know that, though. And this member volunteered to clean the toilets every week for months. How do you lead? You lead in weakness. You don't lord yourself over people. You lower yourself. Now, thirdly, the incarnation, the the imminence, this has everything to do with how to suffer. How to suffer. Suffering, what's suffering like? Suffering, one of the effects of suffering is it tends to isolate you. You tend to feel entirely alone. And in some ways, your own suffering is unique, and you are alone. Maybe it comes from from being dumped. You got dumped, now your heart is broken. Maybe your application was denied. And and because of that, it's like the the, the floor has just dropped out from your world. What are you going to do now? Your plans have, have all just shattered. The incarnation, the incarnation means that Jesus suffered also. If you're a believer, It means that Jesus suffers with you. In his incarnation, Jesus is the man of sorrows, much acquainted with suffering. Jesus is is the great high priest who perfectly sympathizes because he suffered the same things. He was tempted at all points, as we are. You see how how the, the incarnation affects how you suffer. That means, the incarnation means that Jesus knows what pain is like. Jesus knows what chronic pain is like. Jesus also knows what mental anguish is like. Jesus knows what it means to be disrespected by your relatives, betrayed by your friends. Jesus also knows what it means to be unjustly treated by the legal system. And Jesus knows what it's like to be slapped across the face in front of the group. The incarnation means that Jesus understands you in a way that nobody else can. And in the ordinary life of Jesus, you see the lowly glory of God. But the ordinary life of Jesus also shows us two more things about God. And in these two things, they mix together. Verse 14 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Two things here, grace and truth. And the the rest of the passage, verses 15 through 18, it develops the grace and the truth in the life of Jesus. And these two, grace and truth, they, they intertwine. That's what we see in these verses. First of all, the truth. Jesus shows the truth of God. And really, this this whole passage, the rest of it, verses 15 through 18, the passage is populated with truth tellers. You look at John the baptizer. John the baptizer, he's a truth teller. Verse 15, it says John, not the writer of of the gospel of John, but John the baptizer. John bore witness of Jesus. It means he came to tell the truth, to be a witness about Jesus. John was this powerful public speaker, and he spoke to thousands of people during his day. And John declared what about Jesus? Well, he declared 
that Jesus was a man, verse 9, John broadcast that Jesus came into the world. And John also declared this truth about Jesus. John declared that Jesus was man and God. You see that in verse 15. John, the baptizer speaking, says, Jesus is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he, Jesus, was before me. John was born before Jesus, but he's saying Jesus came before I did. And that's because he's divine. There's another truth teller here in the passage. Not only John the baptizer, there's also Moses. Moses appears. And Moses is also a truth teller. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. And, and that's meant to trigger all this remembrance that Moses came down from the mountain with the laws of God given to us. A moral law, a civil law, a ceremonial law. And, and in doing this, in bringing out Moses, this truth teller, the writer is connecting Jesus with the entire Old Testament. He, he, what he's saying here is, Jesus is not a disconnect from Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was about. Jesus is the next step in Judaism, the completion of Judaism. Christ is going to take us even further than Moses. And so you've got John is a truth teller who appears here. You've got Moses who is a truth teller and appears here. And then there's one more truth teller. Who's that? It's Jesus. Jesus comes here as the supreme truth teller. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ declared a fullness of grace and truth that was greater than the entire law of Moses. Do you want to understand the Old Testament? Do you want to understand the, the, the first 75% of the Bible? Read the New Testament. Do you want to understand the grace of the New Testament? Read the law of the Old Testament. And this is the supreme way that Jesus is a truth teller. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Do you want to know God? You will never be able to come up with it. Just walking around inside your head. You're not going to find it in the teachings of any mere human being. You can only find the way to God from someone who has been there and has come down the path to tell us the way. Of all the beings who have ever existed, Jesus, it's Jesus who knows the Father Jesus is the one who is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus is the one who is in the embrace of the Father. The Father embraced his Son, and Jesus, the only one who is in the embrace of God, it says Jesus has declared him. So Jesus, in that way, is the ultimate truth teller. How can you find your way to a place that you have never been? Well, Jesus has been there. Jesus came from there, and Jesus shows us the way there. Verse 18 says, he has declared him. Jesus comes to tell us the truth. And if you're a Christian, can I ask you this? Are you a truth teller? 
Are you one of these truth-tellers? Like John, are, are you telling people about Jesus? Are you telling people, I've met Jesus. He came before me. He's genuine. Are you like Moses, a, a truth-teller? Are, are you bringing the law of God? Bringing the law of God into your own home? Bringing the law of God into where you work? Are you bringing the law of God into your your own life, to yourself? Are you bringing the instructions of God to yourself? Are the instructions of God instructing you? Are you even aware? Are you aware of the Ten Commandments? Do the Ten Commandments limit your business ethic? Do do the Ten Commandments control your sexual activity? Do they control your substance usage? Do the Ten Commandments drive your Sundays and your worship? The law of God, the law of God instructs you about things like humility. Are you humble or are you arrogant? The law of God instructs you on things like your personal interactions, the way you do relationships with other people. Are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you patient? The law of God also interprets your past. How do you make sense? How do you interpret the sins of your fathers and how they will affect you? How do you interpret the generational effects of those who preceded you? The law of God speaks to that. Are you bringing the law of God to be the truth teller? But what is it like when the truth teller comes to us? When a truth teller comes and speaks to us, speaks about us, speaks against us? Well, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's painful. When someone comes to us with truth, sometimes the truth hurts. I remember once uh, I was in a church, and at that time I had small children. And during the singing, this was years ago, we had a child who decided during the singing that this child would vocalize. But while everyone was lifting up their voice in song, this one child decided to let out a loud, long, bellowing sound so that when there were pauses in the singing between lines, you could hear this bellowing from my child. And I wasn't even sure, what was going on? Why? Was, was, this, was this just primitive singing from, from a small child? Was the child trying to be rowdy? But after the service, a, a person who was very kind came to me, and the person came to me as a truth teller. And the person said, when your child does that, it's very distracting to me. And it's, the child is not singing with the rest of us. Your child's vocalization is disrupting my ability to focus in worship. That person was telling me the truth. They, they told it kindly, and it was the truth. And it was hard. It, it, it hurt a little bit. It was easy to feel defensive, insulted. I needed them to tell me that. Sometimes it's hard when a truth teller comes to you. Well, here's a hard truth. Here's a hard truth. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. Now, if you talk to people, some people have a very strong, very strong opinion about God, what God is like, or what God should be like, what he should have done, what he should be doing now. You can be agnostic, which means you don't know if there's a God. You can be agnostic. So it sounds kind of like a position of uncertainty. You can be agnostic and be utterly 
confident about God, you're saying God is not clear enough. Or you can be utterly fastidious about your religious practices. You attend every week. You tithe every dollar that comes in. You have done so well with your religious fastidious, conscientious performance that you've got the respect of all of the peers in your religious community. But the hard truth is, whether you're agnostic, whether you are scrupulous, you haven't seen God by those things. You don't know the way to God. You're in the dark. You're groping in the dark for a way to get to God. All that conscientious observance, none of that gets you to God. And if I can generalize, can I also say this? It means you're not close to God. You might talk about God. You might talk about God with great learning and erudition, with great familiarity, but he doesn't know you, if that's all that you're standing on. The text says only, only the Son has seen God. Only the Son has been in the embrace of the Father. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so that's saying that only Jesus has seen the Father, known the Father, and spent his whole existence in mutual love and oneness with the Father. But he became ordinary to show us God. Verse 18, he has declared God. And this is where truth intertwines with grace. Verses 14, Verse 17, it says Jesus was full both of truth and grace. Grace and truth. By coming as an ordinary man, Jesus didn't only bring truth. Jesus also came in grace. Just as Jesus was the son in the embrace of the father, he comes, he came so that you can be the son or the daughter in the embrace of this heavenly father. That's what he was doing, verse 12. But as many as received Jesus to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Are you a son caught in the embrace of God? Are you a daughter hugged by a loving Heavenly Father. How can, how can you move from being ordinary into the extraordinary position of being a child loved by God? Here's how you become a child loved by God. It's received, not achieved. That's what grace means. It's received not achieved. Verse 17, of his fullness, we have all received. And grace upon grace, you could translate that from the fullness of Jesus, we have received cascades of grace. Every other system, every other way tells you how to achieve the place with God. Make this sacrifice. Maintain this discipline. Achieve a place with God. But the word here tells us You receive it. It's not achieved. You receive this. We have received grace upon grace. This, here is grace and truth in Jesus. It's this. You don't know God. 
You have broken God's law, that's sin. But Jesus has lived your life and kept God's laws. And Jesus died in your place and lives again. And if you believe in him, and if you will receive him, you have the right to become a child of God. You can't climb up. You can't climb up to God and find him. But Jesus can climb down from heaven. Jesus became ordinary to bring you to God. Will you receive him? Millions of people have received him. Here's one such story. In a recent article, the, the journalist Tim Alberta tells the story of how his own father, Richard Alberta, received Jesus. In, he writes, in 1977, Richard Alberta was a successful financier. Richard Alberta had a nice house, beautiful wife, and a healthy firstborn son. But he felt a rumbling emptiness. Something inside him started to unravel. He couldn't sleep. He developed debilitating anxiety. It seemed like religion could hardly be the solution. Dad came from a broken and unbelieving home. And even while Dad was in college, Dad had decided that he was an atheist. And yet, and yet, one weekend, while Dad was visiting family in the Hudson Valley, Dad agreed to attend church with his niece. And that day, Dad became a new person. His angst was quieted. His doubts were overwhelmed. And, and taking communion for the first time at Goodwill Church in Montgomery, New York, Dad prayed to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and accept him as his personal Savior. And after his conversion, Dad became unrecognizable to those who knew him. He rose early, hours before work, to read the Bible, filling a yellow legal pad with verses and annotations. Dad would sit silently for hours in, in prayer. My mom thought he'd lost his mind. She herself was a young journalist who worked under Howard Cosell at ABC Radio in New York. Mom was suspicious of all this Jesus talk. But her maiden name, which was Pastor, was proof of God's sense of humor. Soon, she accepted Christ too. No one has seen God at any time except for the Son. Will you receive him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you came to us and that you came all the way in and moved all the way across we receive, we receive you. And we thank you that you have permanently attached yourself to our humanity in the flesh. And we hold on to you, and we would that you would carry us up into the arms of the Father, and that we in this life, this broken, fallen life, with so many things that are unresolved, we pray you would carry us up into the security of the embrace of God, our Heavenly Father, and that we would dwell there forever, safe, secure, and loved like a son, like a daughter. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.